Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how are you? I am clear and uh, uncontaminated, Gary. That's the good news. Anyway, today is Sunday, the 4th of the 10th, and we are once again taking you into our warm, newsly presence, or embrace even. Yes, I know. I thought it would be a little bit more poetic to start this one. Yes, um, we are in uh, our newsy embrace indeed. So what is the newsiness that you're going to embrace them with, Gary? So we've got a, a couple of small things, I think, to, to go through here. Um, the Leaving Cert, which we have been saying, we started saying it shouldn't be cancelled. Sorry, it won't be cancelled, then it shouldn't be cancelled then this is going to go to shit in record time. And then as more information, we've pretty consistently been, this is going to be an absolute disaster. And we want to talk about the new way it's a disaster now, the last couple of days, as opposed to all the ways we've learned it was a disaster since the results came out. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Then there's a, a little thing that uh, I, don't, I haven't seen reported anywhere here about... Um, it's just an interesting little geopolitical story involving the U.S. Immigration Services and the Chinese Communist Party. And then I also want to go to a Green Party senator who got into a bit of trouble, which is terrible, Michael, because she nearly distracted people from watching the Green National Convention try and vote to have co-leaders, one for each gender, which I think, Michael, we can say is regressive gender binary nonsense. I, year. I'm disappointed, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, I'm saddened that the Green Party is so mired in that kind of binary sex gender just way of looking at the world. I mean, I would have hoped for more, Gary, I would have hoped for more. I, I heard that news, Michael, and I legitimately thought of, there was an old Saturday Night Live sketch with Norm MacDonald, where uh, Norm MacDonald is, is playing Bob Dole. When he's uh, yeah. running against Bill Clinton and he says he's uh, going to break the male-female gridlock in Washington by, coming, by becoming some kind of he-she. <laughs> That's all I could think of. I'll include a link in the bottom. It's a really good skit. Yeah. Bob Dole, neither man nor woman, but solid energy. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, just I'll start on the, the Chinese immigration thing, because it's just more of a... There's not a lot available on this, but I just basically want to mention it, because it's interesting. So, the US Citizenship and Immigration Service, on Friday, came out with new policy guidelines. Um, and this is inadmissibility based on membership in a totalitarian party. And this is a, a new... A policy of the Immigration Services of America and what it actually says and I'll give you the actual quote it says in general unless otherwise exempt any immigrant who is or has been a member of or affiliated with a communist or any other totalitarian party or subdivision or affiliate domestic or foreign is inadmissible to the United States. This ground of inadmissibility only applies to aliens seeking immigrant status. So basically, if you are trying to become an actual resident of America and you were a member of a communist or totalitarian party, you will no longer be allowed to do so. Now, that all sounds lovely, but what this is and, and what it's, it's very clearly being seen as is that this is a shot at the Chinese Communist Party. 
being the largest communist party in the world by membership. I mean, the American government has been cancelling Chinese student visas. It's been looking into deals the Chinese have with American uh, researchers, probably quite wisely considering that China has entire programs that are designed to just uh, take IP and give it back to China where they can do what they want with it. And this is just a new little outgroup of this. It'll be interesting to see if this gets rescinded, if we end up in a Biden presidency. Well, actually, one of the things that would be interesting about the Biden presidency are how much of this kind of thing will actually disappear. On the face of it, you'd say, on, on the face of the state of policy so far, a lot of it, he said, is going to go. But um, I don't know, that's the kind of thing you might just forget about. You know, just keep it in your pocket, as it were. You, know? you might forget about it, but the Chinese won't forget about it. No, that's true. And look, are we, are we, there are other totality. There's Cuba. There's North Korea. I'm running out now. But There's that communist province in India. The, yes. I don't know. Are they, can, we, can we call them totalitarian? Of course, it, it, doesn't, it says totalitarian. It could be any kind of totalitarian, really, couldn't it? I mean, it could be, but it says, it explicitly states communist or any other totalitarian party. So it looks like it is assuming all communist parties are totalitarian and then anything else is just in there as well. So I wonder, do you have to call yourself a communist party or say in the uh, apparently on the face of an unlikely scenario, say that uh, people before profit wanted to en masse emigrate? To the United States, so they could live near to Ben and Jerry's. I wonder would they fall under this? I believe they probably would, and of course, Michael. You know, many of those people being tankies, they would have to just lick the boot and accept it, <laughs> because you know that's that's what you want, like the, the strong hand of the state. It's it's what they want, so it's what they get. The interesting thing I find, Michael, here, and this may be nothing. This may be a sign of how this go. Communist or other totalitarian party, brackets, or subdivision or affiliate. Mm. Now, that could be absolutely nothing. That just could just be a catch-all, so that you can't name it, like, the Democratic Party. Yeah. And, in fact, you're communist. But, if the administration wanted to use that, basically, as a, as a club, any subdivision or affiliate could be anything linked to the Communist Party. Which, if you're talking Chinese Communist Party, you will start taking swaths of people out of the immigration pool. Well, we know the Communist Party is one of the largest actors, say, in Chinese industry, in the Chinese economy. They own or control a hell of a lot of uh, large companies, tech companies, banking companies, finance companies, mining companies, all sorts of things. So... While they may not, you be you might be an employee or you might be a director of these companies. You might not be a member of the party, although I suspect to be a senior official in these. You, well, I don't know. Maybe you, you might you might get away with it. But under that language, that would make it sound like you're an affiliate. I mean, well, the Chinese have a program called the Thousand Talents Program. Well, and that that's part of like a a wider. It's, it's like an expert recruitment program, but it's also very clearly designed to funnel IT, uh, IP back to China. I mean, that could be considered 
an affiliate of the Communist Party because it's run by the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. In which case, there's going to be a lot of academics around the world who may find that now you just can't get to America. Yeah, and if you're an academic in a lot of areas, that's going to be a well, it's going to be a disappointment because let's face it, if you look at the top hundred universities in the in the world, I suppose a, a, a half of them or more are in the United States, and certainly if you're talking about research universities, places like. MIT, Caltech, Stanford, etc. These are the places you want to go. Now, it's only it's only applying to people seeking immigrant status. So short-term visas wouldn't seem to be covered. But once this is in place, you could technically tighten it. Well, at the moment, things ain't looking good for Donald. No. So I, I imagine that this could very well be one of those things that lasts on the books basically as long as it takes for the ink to dry. Oh, I don't know. We could have a Pence 2020. <laughs> you think? Uh, he seems... Donald, if you haven't heard, I don't know how you wouldn't have. But if you hadn't, Donald Trump has COVID-19. There are conflicting reports of his health, but he's produced one or two videos and he seems in reasonably good health. So... Well, there's a plethora of speculation across the, the left of uh, social media uh, about whether or not he really has COVID at all. I, I thought that was uh, that would have been referred to as conspiracy theories, Michael. It can't be a conspiracy theory because it's on the left. If it was on the right, then it would be a conspiracy theory. On the left, it's reasonable speculation based on the deeply flawed nature of the man and his complete lack of any kind of moral sense or guidance or compass. And therefore, it's perfectly reasonable to imagine him doing anything. I, 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 I have enjoyed seeing, because I, I like following some of the big American uh, left accounts. And actually, a lot of the British and Irish uh, left-wing accounts talk quite a lot about Donald Trump as well. And not for the good, wholesome reason that we talk about it, Michael. No. Which is because we're interested in geopolitics. These are people who know nothing about America, but have been driven mad by the election of Donald Trump. But... Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed seeing people saying that well, the problem with Trump is that he's inhuman, he's cruel, you know, he's no sense of empathy, and then it gets around to Donald Trump may have COVID, and they just switch to, well, I hope he fucking dies in pain. <laughs> this is really your chance to show you were better than what you think Donald Trump is. Yeah, they're, they're kind of scoring poorly on the old compassion and empathy they're they're not really doing not really showing up too good on that one uh, but you know do you know michael how hard it is to avoid wishing someone's death on twitter um do nothing i think is the, the answer on the, if you're to that one isn't it yeah i mean you could go you could go bake a pie instead you could go and bake a pie go and buy a pie even you could buy any sort of confectionery product. We here at TRSI and Gript do not have a formal suggestion of what confectionery product you should buy, because we believe in your right to personal freedom. This is true. At least as it relates to bakery choices. But, you know, with the strawberry season coming to an end, maybe it's time to look at apples and pears. Plums are coming in now, I think, as well. So these are all good choices. Anyway, getting... Here's a question for you, Michael. Yeah. With, the, with the end of the berry season, because you've brought it up, if I get a load of frozen berries and I stew them down into a sugar syrup and just eat it, am I effectively getting my daily recommended amount of uh, fruit and berries? 
Uh, you will be getting your recommended daily amount of fruit and berries. However, there will be a concern that you might be exceeding your recommended daily allowance of sugar. But it's so delicious. You know, you you can you you, you don't actually have to put the sugar in. You could just freeze them without the sugar. Yeah, and we don't have to dress ourselves or live in clothing. We could stay in the wild and throw shit at each other. <laughs> as they as they say on Twitter, that escalated quickly. Well, I mean, just coming around here with your ridiculous and ludicrous berry-related suggestions. No, you either do it or you don't do it. Okay, it's apple crumble for everybody. Anyway, the point is, obviously Donald is having another go uh, at the uh, at the Chinese. But this is a kind. This has been a little theme, hasn't it? Really, of using this this kind of executive order to interesting kinds of things, like for example, rooting out the uh, intersectionality, uh, uh, postmodernist. Actually, that's something we haven't talked about on the show, and I haven't seen reported outside of America, but is actually probably worth doing maybe a bit of an episode on, or talking to some of the people who did it, the uh, the pushback against critical theory. And uh, it, it started with federal um, departments, and then it became anywhere that did business with federal departments, so just eradicated this cancer. In specifically, they're targeting um, training in unconscious bias, um, yeah, race uh, sensitivity training, anything. But not not which is not to say that they're tra- training that would tell people that you should not, you should be decent and nice and treat equitably and equally all those everybody and anybody irrespective of their race, but rather those kinds of training courses which as a central component part say that the United States is an institutionally systemically irre- and ir- essentially irredeemably racist state uh, whose foundational documents and whose laws have codified that institutional ra- racism and produced this horribly nasty racist state which exists today, that white people must every day struggle to overcome their privilege and their whiteness in an attempt to be anti-racist. Because there is no, you know, you have to be anti-racist. You can't just be not racist. You're either racist or an anti-racist. That's the new thing. I mean, the, the, the big book on this subject was written by, I want to get the man's name right, Kendi? Kendi, Yes. Did you, did you see, Kendi, for those who don't know, is a, is a black scholar in America who specialises in racial uh, politics. I would say racial grievances, but racial politics. He was donated uh, $10 million, I think, by the CEO of Twitter. Yeah, that's correct. He, he has massive money behind him. Massive money. But he put up a tweet after uh, Amy Comey Barrett was put forward for the Supreme Court. Because she has um, two of her children are adopted and are from Haiti, I believe. I I may not be correct on that, but I believe they're both from Haiti. At least one is. And he said that sometimes white people um, do this to, you know, civilize the savages. And went on this long spiel about it, and basically said this shouldn't happen. That this was a this was a betrayal, and that got retweeted by Richard Spencer. The very well-known, I think, who we say neo-Nazi, white supremacist, Neo-na- anyway. Ne- yeah, certainly, certainly a white, unappel- unappel- uncomplicated white supremacist. I mean, this isn't one of those guys where you have to parse it and say, no, that's just no. This guy is a a, a proper Ku Klux Klan style white supremacist. 
And uh, he retweeted it, I believe what the phrase was, uh, he's not wrong. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. He's not wrong. I, it was a wonderful, you know, all those jokes that the incredibly racist and the incredibly woke are very difficult to tell apart. It was just that wonderful commingling of the wokest man on earth and Richard Spencer agreeing that people should not adopt children of different ethnicities. And it was wonderful. It was. It really showed me what can happen, Michael, when people of all races come together in unity. <laughs> in unity. Uh, in unity yeah, about... In yeah. unity about how that shouldn't happen. In unity about disunity, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, listen, it's this particular this is not actually a new idea a lot of people on twitter seem to be shocked and horrified by but this has been going on for decades now that i'm aware of where you've got people in the social sciences and in uh, race studies who've been advocating that you simply should not allow um people who are of a different race to the to adopt children of to people of a different of, of, of one race to adopt children of a different race that it's impossible for them to be able to be the kinds of parenting role models or whatever that these children need but also particularly when you're talking about white parents adopting children who are of color that there is in that some kind of it's an unexpressed form of kidnapping it's based on yeah as he says this desire to take and i'm using the language not of my own but of other people who to to tame the savages to civilize them but these are they're projecting these racist subconscious shall we say unconscious racist motivations onto these parents uh, I don't know how sympathetic the broad republic is the idea that you have two orphaned children in Haiti who happen to end up being adopted by uh, a loving family who can offer them uh, not just the affection of, uh, of a family but also all of the material well-being and uh, advantages that one could possibly desire. Uh, but apparently this is a bad thing. The problem with all of this is, it's Gary, just to repeat ourselves again again, the problem with all of this stuff, the sexuality is, it's ultimately unstable because you get to a point where, do you see, do you remember there was that thing, a discussion about um, a movie that was going to be made um, about, it was set in, uh, it was a biography of the, of a pianist in the north of China. I think we might have mentioned it before on the podcast, I'm not sure. And there was uproar because it was going to be directed by Ron Howard, right? Ron Howard was a very successful, very accomplished director. And people say, this is outrageous, that this story should be told not by somebody who is like a white American, but somebody from, and initially one person said somebody from East Asia. But then everybody piled in and said, why are you saying East Asia? Are you saying somebody from Japan or from Korea is just the same as somebody from China, and then it's not just China. No, it shouldn't be China because South China is very different to North China. And then West China is very different to East China. And eventually, Gary, you get a situation where the story can only be directed by the guy who lived next door. And the chances are that, you know, not everybody will live next door to somebody who knows how to direct a large budget Hollywood movie. Do you think, Michael, that after Kendi saw that Richard Spencer agreed with him, do you think there was a moment where he just sort of went, huh? 
Huh. No, no is my answer to that. I am sure that that gave him absolutely no pause at all. Yeah, like I just really think if your entire thing is is sorting out racial justice and you say something, and one of the most prominent neo Nazis and white nationalists in America stands up and says that man's got the right idea, you might pause for a second and go, "What did I say? Yeah, what exactly did I say?" On the other hand, is it not the case? I don't know if it's specifically with Spencer, but I know that one of the leaders of the most most prominent leaders of the white supremacists in the United States in this election cycle has decided that Trump has been a disappointment, and he's going to nominate. He's they're throwing their support behind Biden, and they have endorsed Biden. Now, I don't imagine that that fact had a great deal of impact on the the on the DNC or most Democratic voters. Uh, it's just one of those things, isn't it? You know, if you, uh, uh, what, so whatever, I don't know, should we say his top talk is right twice a day? It's just a question if you if you hang around enough, the, well, when you push the circles far enough, you will eventually meet on some things. But Michael, what if the clock is digital? Well, then, you Gary, you have to rewrite so many philosophical thought experiments about the nature of knowledge over the last 150 years that it's just not worth it. It's amazing that Western philosophy got so far, but was just totally unable to comprehend advances in clockmaking. Yeah, it, many people feel it was, you know, it was the, the beginning of the end of philosophy in the in the Western world, the digital clock. Maybe that's why. No, no, I was going to say maybe that was Nietzsche when he went mad and started hugging horses. Maybe he had conceived the digital clock. Or maybe that's why you never see digital watches anymore, having once been very popular, that they've actually been driven out of the market by big philosophy. Mm. Upon consideration, Michael, I think that entire stream was just total nonsense. I think that it was coming very close to total nonsense anyway. Anyway, so from one form of nonsense to something which isn't nonsense, for once, because it involves the Green Party. Green Party Senator, Roisin Garvey. Yes. She's had to come out and apologise for her vicious slurs against members of the travelling community. Not people from the country, just travellers. So... I think she included rural people as well, didn't she? In what she originally said, but I don't think in her apology she did. Ah, well, that would make sense. I don't think that rural people fall into one of the seven protected categories. No. So what happened is Roisin basically stood up at the Green Party's national convention and said that she had learned... That, you know, you should use your uh, your words carefully. We don't have to give them statistics and on carbon this and climate that and use big vocabulary. And she said she learned this while working for travellers for a few years. And um, if you start engaging with people and you're using vocabulary that's new stuff and you shouldn't understand, you shouldn't uh, assume that people understand what they are. And this didn't go down well, I think would be safe to say. Yeah, I think everybody was surprised that this did not go down well. That was a shock to everybody. I saw one uh, one uh, uh, traveller woman who uh, works in advocacy saying that if she was to write to an email to the Green Party to you know express uh, her concern about this position, she was wondering how big should the words how big should the words that she should use be. You know, she she seemed to be concerned that the Green Party might have difficulty understanding her. I I think there's two things with this. On one level, I think she's actually making a good point. Horrendously. On the other level, I think the people that... The fact that people heard this and immediately went to... 
because the Green Party thinks travellers and people from the country are thick, ties in pretty closely with what people think of the Green Party. That fits with what people think the Green Party thinks about people in the country. Yeah. But her core point, like her, her core point, and the reason I just didn't find this particularly aggravating as someone who lives in a country, lives in the country of a country even, was um, she, the point there of you talk to people in a way that they understand and you don't use jargon and you direct your communications based on that person and what they know and also how they talk, how they naturally talk. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not only travellers or rural dwellers, that's also city dwellers, people of different classes, people of different occupations, people of different uh, sexes. All of those things, I think it's a good idea to be aware that you can personalise political communications based on those things and make them more effective. That, I think, is what she was trying to say. You think... I think that's what she was trying to say, and given that she is a member of the Green Party and a senator for the Green Party, it wouldn't terribly surprise me if she does kind of think that those two groups are a bit thick. Maybe. I, I think that that was in part what she was trying to say. I think, I think there's another element there which maybe is not explicit. Maybe I'm being unkind, but I think there's an element of the Greens that they, they believe in what... I think it's Leo Strauss, the political philosopher, would call the noble lie that there's only so much truth you need to tell the people because the peop- only very few of the people will understand the truth sufficiently well to be able to see the complete picture. And if you, tell, if you go around telling all of the truth to the people, they'll get upset because they'll realise that all of the truth means that they won't be able to drive cars anymore unless they're rich or they won't be able to afford fuel uh, anymore they won't be able to have fires or oil fired central heating or jobs and things like that or their farms are going to be gradually downsized and downsized because they won't be allowed to keep large amounts of cattle or indeed any kind of stock because at the end of the day, they're ultimately agricultural Ireland is going to be turned into theme park agricultural Ireland because cows go around belching all the time and producing that methane and we have to get that down. I think, yes, yes, it's right. she's saying we should talk to people where they are and use language they understand. But I think there's also a, a deeper element in that, which is tell them the stuff that they understand and that they like. Tell them the stuff that they can get a grip on, but don't tell them all of the truth. Speaking of the uh, noble lie, Michael, did you hear Gail O'Rourke, the uh, assisted suicide campaigner, speaking recently on News Talk? Yeah. Where she was asked about the assisted suicide bill, and she made the mistake of saying what she thought about it, which in politics is just something you don't do because people don't like those things. They say they want you to be honest, but they really don't. Um, Mostly because if politicians were honest, it would mostly be telling people that you probably don't even vote and you're dressed terribly. But what she said was that the purpose of the bill and that it was going to be quite strict was uh, to get the foot in the door. And then it could be amended and expanded as necessary. Yes. Which is absolutely what activists in this area want. They want as wide a bill as possible. But the problem is, if you say that, then when it goes to the public, the public will start pushing back and saying, well, what the public is deeply sympathetic to 
the cases that the media has focused on primarily up to now, those of elderly people, those in chronic pain, things like that. But if it expands, then you start seeing people go, I'm just kind of uncomfortable with this. I'm not going to vote for it. So you never tell people that that's what you're going to try and do. Yeah, it's more than if it expands. It's if you set it up and say, well, this is just the beginning, folks, when in fact all of the people, all of the politicians who are selling it are saying, this is not the, this is not the beginning, this is the end. This is the end game. This is where this finishes. This will never go any farther than this. This is incredibly restrictive. We are very careful. We're going. To, this is only for very specific cases. There are going to be all sorts of protections involved. We are not going to go down uh, the line where you find people in their thirties suffering from depression being euthanized, as it has happened in Belgium. You, Cases where you have children being euthanized, cases where people who are no longer compass mentis uh, and resisting the blandishments of the doctors. By the way, you know, it's just pointless thing to get into is the language of this whole thing. But you know the way they're talking about uh, the, the, the phrase that they, they, they've hooked on is death dying with dignity, you know. And mm. people are pushing back and saying assisted suicide. We have to say it's, it's not assisted. How is it assisted suicide even? Assisted suicide to me suggests, I say to you, could you pass me, I'm sorry, you see see that jar of... Uh, Would you be so kind as to diazepam. pass me the, uh, yes. The, 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 the diazepam and that litre of vodka, please. Or could you could you just see that? Could you could you just hand me over that the pistol there or the shotgun? That's not what happened. Maybe even you know having them loaded. What this is is the is legalized killing, not legalized suicide. It is legalized killing where the person being killed has consented to being killed. Yes, but they're not committing suicide. They're consenting to a doctor killing them. And I suppose that sounds like I may just. Picky and pedantic, but I think it's a kind of important point on the broader sense, broader question of what this is potentially going to do to our health system and our and, and healthcare and and, and 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 the doctors that are operating within it. You know? well, I suppose the the issue you have here is that there are legitimately people who are in deep amounts of pain or have degenerative illnesses who do not want to live past a certain point. The uh, the issue I I've heard like people saying things like. And these aren't people with locked-in syndrome. These are people who have mobility, but are, let's say, with chronic pain, saying that this will give them back a control. You can commit suicide in a number of ways. You don't need a law to do it. If you really no. want to kill yourself, you can probably go and kill yourself. So I, I, don't, I don't get that line of argument. This whole, well, by allowing us to uh, decide when we can die by killing ourselves, we'll have control of our lives, because you can do that anyway. But it's also, and it's, geez, it's very hard to talk about this without sounding like some kind of horrible, cold-hearted bastard, because I... Oh, please, go on. I don't, because I, part of me, is, it's, I hate this this discussion, and says, because I'm perfectly well aware that we all could end up in a situation like this, and I could perfectly well end up in a situation where I'm there and thinking, I wish, oh, to sleep, to sleep, for a chance to dream, you know, to go off this mortal coil and all that. But the idea, none of us... Is, Human beings, we, we don't get to decide when we die. That doesn't take away, that doesn't mean we, that means we are out of control. We None of us have control over that. It's, death comes when it comes. And dignity, 
I don't see how this confers dignity on you as a human being. I think this is just these are just words that we've decided to sellotape or to glue to an idea to make it seem palatable. But it's it's a and it's very hard to say to somebody, oh God knows to somebody who's in this position and you're saying, well, I'm sorry, but this is just a fiction. The idea that this is creating dignity. And this is and this is giving you control. I I have a deep and abiding love for things like nonsensical things, nonsensical humour. And Michael, I'm tell you, I'm gonna really enjoy when the politicians who vote for this uh, have their next anti-suicide statement. Well, this is the this is the, the real thing, isn't suicide it? Suicide is never the answer. You just signed a bill into law that recognises that suicide is sometimes the answer. And if you want to have that debate, I'm happy to have it. But I don't think you do. I don't think you want to have a debate about when exactly is suicide right and what age is suicide right at. And all of those things. I think you just want to go for it because it's popular and then you'll come out next year and be like a if you had a house or something and you'll speak very eloquently about how suicide will never solve any problems, totally ignoring this bill. I think we have probably, I think, Gary, we've probably more anti-suicide charities in this country than any other in any other group. Every, it seems to me every every county, every large town in Ireland has, a, has its own local suicide charity. And then there are national suicide charities. And we have become extremely concerned with suicide amongst particularly young men, but young women, sadly, also. And suicide as an issue has become a really... It's hooked into that mental health as a big issue. How are you going to maintain a coherent position? How are you going to keep a straight face when you're going to introduce this, which is not... Which is saying, okay, suicide is bad unless you can get your doctor to do it. Or suicide is bad unless there's no, there's only a small likelihood of it ever getting better. Whatever it is in this instance. Yeah, but what is this? And who gets, and who, and who, and who gets to decide what it is? And like I, said, I referenced an example recently. There, there was a case of a young man in, in, in Belgium who was suffering from severe chronic depression and felt that at this stage there was no sign that there was any treatment that was going to alleviate these symptoms and he was miserable and the state agreed to euthanize him. Now that's the kind of thing which they say will never happen at the beginning. But I can tell you they said that that would never happen in Belgium when they were at and they said that that would never happen in Ireland when these things started first. But once you accept the principle there's a weird thing here which is it's a mixture of people who tend to have a lot of faith in the right of the state to interfere in your lives, married with this sort of radical sense of autonomy in this very small personal space, so that you can make these demands because this is my life, so I get to decide. And then you can then you introduce the state into it. You say, well, the state is going to vindicate my rights in a sense because that's the job of the state. There was actually an interesting case in Belgium. Um... Well, the, the judgment was earlier this year, I think January or February, maybe. And you might remember this, Michael, about 10 years ago, um, there was a woman who was euthanized and she had depression. Mm-hmm. And um, three doctors ended up being charged with manslaughter. I think it was manslaughter. Um, because it was argued that they had made no attempt to deal with the depression 
and when she'd come to them requesting euthanasia that they had not really argued against it. They had basically allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. And that because they didn't try to cure the depression, she didn't have um, a form of mental pain which was unlikely to be um, incurable and therefore the euthanasia should not have taken place. The judgment in that this year, all three were um, acquitted. Yes. But I do remember when those laws came in, that uh, that was also meant to only be in the narrowest of circumstance. And now you've got 38-year-old women with depression being euthanized. Euthanized as well. I mean, God, being killed. You know, euthanized dogs. Uh <sighs> It's it's one of those classical balancing acts, which frankly Gary is never going to be. We're never going to find a but there is no balance. It's one of those things where it's a very hard thing for us as modern human beings to accept that there are going to be situations where there are where there is no single choice we can make, which produces all the positive outcomes and none of the negative outcomes. There is no. There, there is no choice we can make in here which is going to leave us happy that everybody, everything has been sorted out. They're going to be, if we decide to go down this line in order to meet the desires of, of certain people who are in situations which are to us and to them horrific, and this is and and, and this legislation is going to give them something which they deeply desire, and our sympathy speaks to that we say okay well you know it's, it, this is not something we can refuse them and if we decide to do that well okay but let's not do that without recognizing that this will not come without collateral effects that this will not come without costs and they're going to be hard to find costs but costs it seems to me at least there's going to be a corrosive effect on the practice of medicine and how doctors understand their relationship with their patients and the, also what is the correct functioning of a publicly funded health service and we've seen it's not quite the same story but you, do you remember there was a case in uh, was in Wisconsin or Minnesota it was one of the mid this sort of the northern central states prairie states of the United States where somebody had lost I don't know if they'd never had their insurance or they'd lost their insurance and they applied to the state for a particular procedure and they were suffering from i'm not sure if it was a it was a, a terminal illness but certainly say we a, a chronic illness and they were told that they the state couldn't afford it uh, or the state wouldn't pay for it under the under this the statute for medic med, say state medicare in that place however they were willing to pay for the person to be euthanized super you know it's the humane option michael it's a humane option you know we can't pay for that but on the other hand we do we do have this other option for you now that sounds that's that's that sounds like a single grotesque thing and oh well you know that's you always got to have these odd things happening but that's that's just ultimately bringing to the final conclusion that one of the problems we always have in any system of which is funded principally with taxpayers, is what is the most judicious and effective way of spending tax dollars? You know, how long do we, how long do we perpetuate the lives of people who are very old and ill? Mm. Or, or, or do we have to come to a point where we say, you know what, when we when we make this balance and we look at the, the treatments that are being 
denied to younger people or people who could be healthy maybe that this is a point where we are we going to pretend to ourselves that there are not going to be elderly people who are going to feel under pressure that they feel people who are depressed or people who are alienated or people who are isolated people who are alone or people who can go under influences by their family and friends people you know family friends are not all not always the nicest people particularly if there's a nice house or a large bank account or or a big farm you know maybe there's time to move on and that these people were not under under pressure that they we know lots of elderly people already are made to feel excess to requirements that you know they've hung around long enough and come on now that, are we are we going to pretend that that's not going to happen that there are not going to be people who are going to be forced feel that this is the direction that they should be going even if ultimately this is not what they want i mean i mean this actually strikes me as similar to abortion in that you have the law and you have the culture surrounding it and they both influence each other but you can have a, a situation where let's say uh, assisted suicide or euthanasia is totally legal but not widely used because the culture of a country is such that it's seen as only usable in extreme cases. But I think as, as laws liberalise, they tend to influence the culture in a certain direction because it becomes normalised. Yes. I, kind of, I think abortion is in the same kind of area. There's the laws and there's the culture, and you can have a country that has uh, total freedom in relation to abortion, but has a culture where it's not acceptable, and you'd see lower numbers than you might see in a country that technically it's totally banned in but i i think the when you're talking with the elderly a, a point to make there is that some people are assholes and they'll apply pressure to people to you know kind of move on out of the way let the new generation true you're you're a burden but you'll also have situations where people think they are a burden on um you know their children their grandchildren and sometimes because they are a burden which makes it a little bit more difficult because you can't just tell them they're not because they know they are. And if you then present a, an option to those people where they can just go away permanently, you will actually have to also deal with the fact that, that will they will apply pressure to themselves to do that without anyone in the family wanting it to happen or thinking it is the best outcome. Absolutely, I've seen that in my own family. I'm sure everybody who's had, who has dealings with elderly relatives, people who genuinely feel, oh God, I'm a burden on you. If if I wasn't here, you'd be able to do this or to do that. And the family are absolutely, because, without getting excessively Christian about it, this is one of the things that makes us human, is our our willingness and our capacity to care for those people who can no longer care for themselves. We we give them care, we mind them, uh, maybe in a sense it's 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 reciprocity for the care that they give us, but it's also, it's the opportunity to be at our, our best as human beings, to be altruistic, to to give without hope of reward or benefit but simply because this is the good thing to do now as it happens i think that very often people will find that there was a tremendous in a sense there's there is pleasure in service i suppose is what i'm trying to say and when you're doing service to people who are ill or who are elderly who can't do it this is an opportunity to have 
to give service and to find pleasure in that, to find meaning in that. And pe absolutely, you've got to find older people who are going to think, you know what, they'd be better off without me. None of this is to say that I, I can, we can short-circuit this argument. I'm just saying this, let's, not, let's not pretend that these are things, that this is, this is something that we can introduce and this is not going to have other consequences that are consequences which are going to be ugly and nasty and unfortunate and sad and wrong. This doesn't require a referendum. This is a straight shot through legislation. Yeah. So you, two things will happen. Private lobbying will intensify to get this thing through. And I would imagine it already has by this point. Yes. And it'll get passed without much public notice of it because it's wonderfully progressive and in line with where most of the media would see themselves. So they won't make a big deal about it. Yeah. No. Or if they think there's significant chance of public backlash they'll start going more towards a public-facing campaign and it will purely be people, the, the very small number of people in Ireland who either want the right to die or who had a loved one who uh, used assisted suicide or euthanasia, depending on their preferences, I suppose. And then we might see some sort of public debate in it. But barring that, they'll just push this through. Fine Gael trying to push it to some sort of citizens assembly type deal would seem to be a way to just kill it. Except, except there is a, there is a, I think a, another possibility and I'm not saying it will happen but this is what, where these bills have failed it, it is because of this. You use the, the, the right to die. Of course it's not the right to die that people are demanding. They're, it's the right to be killed by a doctor. And that brings in the third factor you're now going to make a demand on a doctor that the doctors provide this service. Now you'll say, oh well, obviously there will be conscious protections. Well, I I'm saying that maybe there won't be. Maybe once it's legal, if you're a doctor in, in working in uh, gerontology or palliative care or whatever, maybe this will be part of your requirements. You, you know, you're being interviewed for a post, you are willing to knock them off, aren't you, if that comes to us. Where this is, for example, in the United Kingdom, where efforts to bring in these, this kind of legislation have failed and the last time failed pretty spectacularly in, a, in an open vote in Parliament, it's because there has been strong resistance from the medical profession. Because at the end of the day, it will be the doctors who will have to do this. And we know, well, it seems to me from what I've been hearing, for example, doctors involved in uh, palliative care, doctors in, in end-of-life care doctors who work and medical professionals generally who work in the hospice for example in the the hospice sector are deeply opposed to this also psychiatrists who work with uh, who work in the area of suicide and suicide prevention have issues with this so if if you do get strong pushback from the medical profession and that strong pushback is articulated in the media, then I then I think the things becomes a little bit more problematic for the politicians. We do know that historically the Irish, we have a pretty deferential relationship with doc, with medical doctors. We hold them in very high esteem, and if there is if there's the perception that there's a strong voice coming from the medical profession, and not just individual scattered voices, but lots of voices coming from lots of areas, then it may be 
it may be it may be more problematic for them. But we should see. I I think we may see that depending on to what extent public opinion has gone and opinion within the profession. I think we are a very conformist people, Michael. Oh, we are. I don't doubt that. I mean. You and I have both worked on political things where we've had to reach out to people in various professions, be it business or medical or whatever, and you talk with people, and many people will privately tell you something and just say that that is their view. And we'll publicly state an entirely separate uh, view on that. But then we'll simply tell you that that's just the way this goes, that it's either you say the right thing or you suffer a consequence for it. Mm-hmm. And they're just not going to do that. And I, yeah, I agree with you. And I think to an extent how this debate will go forward will depend on the sense within, say, the the Irish Medical Association or other groups like that, the, the members of those associations, the GPs and whatever, what their sense is of the collegial opinion. If doctors have the sense of the collegial opinion is opposed to this, I think they would probably feel freer in making uh, their opinions known if on the other hand there's a sense that they're not quite sure where this is going how it's going you know then they would obviously be far less uh, likely to put their heads above the parapet so uh, we should we should we should wait and see the doctors i've spoken to maybe it's a self-selecting group are very very uncomfortable with this uh, they will also say uh, privately to you that effectively that that these days, for example, they say pain management is a very different kind of thing now than it once was. So, and, but people think of this as being uh, about people in severe pain. That generally speaking, it's very, very, very unusual that you can't. Now, it may be that at times to to actually manage pain, that you're giving such large doses of opiates that you're going to consequently lead to the early demise of the patient. But that's a substantially different kind of, you know, getting back into old arguments from other medical areas that we talked about before, but the principle of double effect, it, the, the, the primary intent is not to kill the patient, but rather to manage their pain. As a consequence of that, because of you've cardiac arrest or you've respiratory, you suppress it, so you suppress resp- respiration or whatever, the patient uh, dies. But that, uh, it, it, I think the more, Difficult cases are, like you say, locked-in cases or cases of degenerative uh, neurological uh, diseases where people, I mean, and it's, it is awful. But, for example, in the case of people with Alzheimer's, I mean, we know that a lot of people are terrified, and I put myself in that category, the idea of, you know, you develop Alzheimer's. But the thing is, we're told people who have Alzheimer's are not actually desperately unhappy that this is not something that this is that it's it's it, it's i think of probably once the disease has taken over it's more it's a more painful experience for the people the loved ones who observe the disease rather than the person's actually suffering it but this is not something that i ever want to discover he said touching touching wood but these are but these are the kinds of cases obviously that people are very aware of very concerned about and where they see themselves shall we say and imagine themselves in that situation and think god i would like i would like to hope that there would be a way out of that michael as we let's go from the suffering of the old to the suffering of the young just as this law will expand from dealing with the suffering of the old to the suffering of the young in time the leaving certain errors a this is not going well. It is not going. Do you know the, the 
I'm slightly puzzled. Well, I, I live in a world of puzzlement, Gary, as you know. Norma, the Minister for Education, she seems to be lying on all these grenades. But how much of this can really be her fault? I mean, she only came in, surely, when the thing was done and dusted. I mean... I, I think she's handled this, actually, quite capably. She's done a couple, a, couple, a couple of interviews on TV where she was very good. I one, another one which was pretty poor. But, I, God, I don't know, maybe it's... I would have distanced myself a little bit from this whole shenanigans, all these shenanigans at this stage. A little bit more than she has. But maybe she feels, you know, I don't know, she has to maintain the relationship with her department and she can't throw the department under the bus. It's her, her job as the minister to defend the department. I don't know, I kind of get the sense that she thinks, you know, this is her job. This is what she's there to do. And I can respect that. I, yeah, it looks like she came in late enough that pretty much all of these errors were already in play. Uh, and that all of this had been set up. Although, maybe not. And she is really just left to deal with the aftermath of it. Which she is... I think she's been pretty straightforward most times. Now, I think the problem they have here is... Yeah, so it's 6,100 students are going to get higher marks following the review, um, yeah. which may mean that some people have accepted courses because they didn't get their first choice when actually they had got their first choice, or they've deferred when they should have got a college place. So 6,100 students have higher places. Some students should get lower marks, but I think they've said that um, no one has been given lower marks. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's around 7,000, well, according to Gript anyway, 7,200 7, leaving cert grades were affected by the, in the errors, in the calculated grade system. This is the, the new, the new bit. It's 6,100 of those are getting yeah. higher grades. The whole thing is just a shit show. Um, I mean, we were seeing these numbers all over the place. We have to assume that they're, they're true. There was one, one, one figure which was given was that 100 students out of the total had seen a reduction in six grades. You know, that's dramatic stuff. And, and the thing about it is, Gary, because I've, I've talked to teachers who have, who, who after this came out and looked at the grades that were given, and remember that one of the, par one of the parts of the system was where people, where if you had, say, you the maths department, so you maybe have, X number, four or five different maths classes, maybe three different leaving cert maths classes. So the, the, all the maths teachers will get together and they'll discuss the grades and they'll, oh yeah, well I had him in intercert or I had him last year, I had her this year. Yeah, I think she's better than him and he's better than her and so on and so forth. And they agree. And then the results come back and grades have been changed in what appears to be a random fashion. Like there doesn't appear to be any reason on the basis of any of the information inputted, that that should have been taken up and that should have been taken down. It's just, it's almost like there was this a part of the algorithm that was used had a certain type of randomness in it that they were going to do this to mix it up. I don't know. It all seems bizarre. There is, of course, the there is a certain element of, who are saying, well, you know what? This surely should, if anybody has any grain of sense, protect the Leaving Cert as an exam for quite some time to come. I think after this we can all agree the department should just not touch this for a while. Um, I mean, it also opens them to, I'd say, a new and exciting front of legal cases. Yeah. Because you'll have people who were not from schools they thought were affected, but now it turns out that 
I mean, what, you have 6,100 students who have lower grades than they should be. Some of those had to miss courses they wanted. Some of those have to have deferred. All of those would seem to now have standing to bring a case against the department. I mean, then you have the 60-something hundred who got grades above what they should have achieved. And then, and this I don't quite get, there seems to have been just simply an error in the algorithm, an error in the calculation, which was nothing to do with the model, which, you know, and the model itself, I think, for the reasons we've said already, the model itself is flawed. And is, as yeah, one so commentator we, called it, a, 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 shall we say, a, a blunt instrument, I think is more than a blunt instrument. Uh, but but even working within the model, the model itself seems to come up with the wrong results. Yeah, I, I know we've talked about on the show before why the model wasn't a good idea, why it was unworkable and the issues with it. But even within that, they just seem to have bollocksed up the actual execution of the idea. There is apparently a line of code for those people who understand these things. I will leave it to them. A line of code which was in it, which was wrong, and that has it has had the potential to produce incorrect results. Well, on Saturday, um, which as in yesterday, there was a review published. Uh, so they knew there were errors in the code about it looks like about two weeks ago, and they sat on it. They didn't tell anyone. Right. So it looks like some ministers were aware of it. I'm not sure if all of them were aware of it. Probably. Whatever. They took some time to try and figure out how to handle this or whatever reason they did. But they knew there was an error. On Saturday, a review came in from the external consultants that they had brought in to look at it. And it turns out that there are additional errors in the code. Now, they're saying that those issues have all been fixed. Mm Mm-hmm. But... Were they fixed when the grades were allotted? Because it doesn't sound like they were. And so fixing it now isn't really anything, because, to be honest, we can just throw the bloody thing in the bin now. (laughs) Also, they didn't run a procurement... um, They didn't run the standard procurement process for this. They said they didn't have time. Yeah, they were under... There was a time pressure issue, which meant that the uh, standard procurement procedures were not followed. So I... I was reading through the examiner because the examiner did a piece on the report and they say what happened was when the algorithm looked at junior search data, it was meant to look at their Irish, English and maths and then take another two of the students' subjects, their best two subjects. And instead, it took Irish, English and maths and took the students' two weakest subjects outside that. Also, uh, they were meant to remove CSPE from consideration, and for it just didn't do that because CSPE isn't a real thing. Yeah, and well, also it's true that some schools take it rather more seriously than others. But I, lo- I loved the department coming out and just going, "Well, yes, that did happen, but we've uh, resolved it, and it's now operating correctly." <laughs> I mean, that that would have been very helpful before the leaving cert. And kind of useless now, but I suppose it's good that you fixed it. Yeah, but Gary, this isn't isn't it the case that we're, we're, what we're talking about here is you know that old um, the old saying about uh, somebody criticizing a beautiful woman's for some very minor defect is like saying Sharon Stone has ugly toes. This is uh, this is a little bit like Sharon Stone has ugly toes. The system itself is just bollocksed. The system as it was. Uh, as it was implemented, 
the differentials for socioeconomic denied whatever but the, the apparent punishing of uh, high performing schools and the apparent increase in results from schools with historically poorer results uh, the bluntness of this as a tool to to achieve some kind of equity rather than equality in result is just the whole thing it, the thing is rotten now we're talking about the maths of the of the rottenness the thing is just it, it needs to be binned and just uh, and and forgotten and well not forgotten remembered remembered every time somebody in the department has a, another clever idea about how we can improve the leaving search it needs to be remembered for that purpose but as regards any kind and this is the worry that some people said yeah that some teachers have said to me is that their worry is that this is going to be portrayed now as okay we had some problems we had some teething issues but we've sorted them out we've worked out the problems with the code we have sorted out the problems that we that we just we're going to be so much better this next year that this is the way we can go so i think that it's important to, to, to remember while the, yes this, this is good fun and it's going to maybe be a basis for another few law cases to and i was talking to a friend of mine from this uh, leaf the leafy suburbs uh of dublin who said you know what they have completely missed their target here because they've misunderstood what they're talking you're talking about middle-class parents in dublin across the country who don't really believe in anything much anymore except for one thing their children and their children's right to succeed and they are willing to go out to the supreme court for that for the right for that to vindicate that right these people will not stop and anything which is going to interfere with that is going to meet with the kind of the kind of viciousness that can only be imagined at a south dublin tea tea party it's the whole thing is rotten let's get rid of it and forget about it go back to the idea of just an exam where people are tested yep. insofar as we back. can i think we need to go back to the comforting brutality of the leaving search and by the way can we also stop this this whole thing about the terrible brutality i think part of the brutality of the leaving search is how much is how much time we spend talking about how brutal it is i really do Every year, it's just a line of "Oh my God, it's so hard, and so awful, and so stressful, and so terrible, and your lives depend on it. Don't believe your life depends on it. Don't worry. It's you know, it's not that bad. It really is not that bad. There are going to be worse things that will happen to you in life than doing your leaving cert. And if we took a slightly more balanced view to the two weeks of exams at the end of sixth year, I think maybe we could take a little bit of the sting about the notion of the brutality of the leaving cert anyway. But that's just me. Mm. My res my results weren't great, but by but I had a perfectly pleasant living cert. So did I. I don't. I don't think a little bit of brutality in this sense is negative. I can tell you, when I got to college, I saw more. I saw far more sophisticated brutality from some of my professors. <laughs> it was a fa It was honed over years of madness and alcoholism at the third level. In my lads, we did, they did the grading on a curve hadn't yet been discovered in the place I went, and I, one one professor of classics, his favourite comment when a student would go to seek an essay which had not been put into the receptacle for returned essays, and he would eventually get his courage up to knock on the door, 
for the two hours a week when the professor was available to talk to the public and he would be advised to to look in the circular file the circular file of course being the large dustbin he had at the side of his desk you may find it there <laughs> so this was not grating on a curve anyway I think we should leave it at that on a Sunday let people get free and do all of those things you can do, like potter around your house in fear of the outside world, which comes bearing death on swift wings. Have a Danish pastry and a cup of coffee. It'll be all better. Anyway. Maybe and some toast. Maybe some toast. And until then, we should be back during the week with more insights into the state of chassis that is the world today. But until then, stay sane and stay safe. And remember, until you hear our uh, welcoming voices again. Should the dread call, don't let it in. <laughs> All the best. Bye-bye.